Well, Psalm 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the holy word of God, written for you and for me today. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His, eyelid, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Indeed, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, beloved congregation of the Lord, Psalm 11 is another psalm of refuge from the pen of David. As is true with many of the psalms, they aren't in chronological order. And so we find that to be true with Psalm 11. It's a short psalm that was sung and written during a time when David was likely under persecution by King Saul prior to David taking the throne as the newly appointed and anointed king. Many scholars believe that the persecution was intense and persistent, to the point in which David was forced to flee from place to place. More of the direct context of David's flight was centered around his knowledge of Saul's envy and, in fact, his attempts at killing David. We see Saul's actions, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you'd like to turn with me there, please do. 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. And in the second half of verse 27 and onward, we read, And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to eat? either yesterday or today. So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. 
And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? And notice verse 33. Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. And so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had treated him shamefully. If you remember, Jonathan and David were very close friends. And Jonathan had much care and affection for David. And he even had a sense of protection of David. He would stand up for David, even as we see here in his responses to his father Saul. And so he was grieved. And he was upset that his father would act so shamefully. And so in this psalm, we see David's struggle against strong temptation to trust God. And we'll consider this along with what the righteous can do in verses 1 through 3. Let's also look at David's words about the God who sees, the God who tests, and the God who hates in verses 4 through 6, as well as what is true of the righteous Lord in verse 7. So notice how David begins in verse 1. He says, in the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, see the outcome of David's internal struggle in these opening words here. Knowing Saul's pursuit, knowing how he felt and how he was the aggressor toward David and coming after his life. David likely received scoffing from his enemies, or possibly even counsel from his enemies, even from his friends, that David needed to flee and find his salvation and refuge somewhere other than God. But David's words clearly show that he was resolved to stand and to keep his trust in his Lord. And this was the good and the right course of action. Beloved, it's such a common temptation for us today as well, isn't it? In times of trial, in times of maybe even severe persecution, and some of us may not have gone through such things often or in great detail, but nonetheless, in such times, we are tempted not to trust God and rather to take matters into our own hands. As if we can do a better and more efficient job at protecting ourselves than he can or would. And that really was at the heart of the scoffers or the friend's poor counsel question, wasn't it? Notice his question. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In other words... How can y'all even say such a thing? How can you even open your lips and utter such words? How could you even suggest that the best thing to do would be to fly like a bird out of the city to a mountain fortress for safety when I should rightly turn to the Lord 
for my comfort and refuge in my times of trouble. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, hey, that doesn't sound like a bad idea considering his circumstances. In fact, you could agree with David in Psalm 55, verses 4 through 8, when he says, my heart is severely pained within me, and the the terrors of death have, have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. And so I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. See, the desire, even but for a moment in David's heart, to find refuge, to to fly away. And what would the outcome be if I just flew away and I was able to escape this present place, considering those things around me, considering things in my own mind and heart and things that are swirling in both places? If I could just fly and I would find rest. Indeed, he says in verse 7 of Psalm 55, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. And yet, beloved, David here holds the line. He holds the line and in his trust shows his faith, which is grounded in the word and promises of God. We find such faith in David's words in Psalm 56, beginning in verse 8, where he says, You number my wanderings. Notice, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hmm. That's a passage that we need to meditate on for a while, isn't it? That's a passage in which those truths need to sink into our hearts and minds often and daily. But see that David expresses his trust in the Lord, not because things are going well, but precisely because they weren't. And trusting is what he needed to do as a faithful and even as a suffering servant. That really is the crux of trust. That really is the context of trust. Trust comes into play. Trust is essential. Trust is active when things are not going well. And yet we know our God, and we praise his word, and we trust him in his promises. And so what did the real threat and present danger look like for David? Well, he goes to tell us in verse 2 of Psalm 11. For look! The wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Some of you may be thinking, oh, we've heard this type of battle language before, we've heard this type of uh, message regarding archers and arrows and the like, but 
pay attention. Look at the words here in this verse. It's very helpful. Beloved, the seed of the serpent was crafty in devising and carrying out a plan to take down the seed of the woman, the upright in heart. And see how they set an ambush as David walked through the valley of the shadow and the wicked secretly had their arrows aimed right at his heart. And death was their aim. Satan loves to ambush God's people, doesn't he? Attacks in secret, in stealth, and unpredicted are his go-to in many ways. And this is very true, not only with physical threats and attempts to take our lives, but also spiritual attacks in the battlefield of the mind. We always need to be on guard looking for his fiery darts because they are aimed at us, even though we may not be aware and we may not see. But considering the attacks and work of the wicked, David asks an important question in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, what foundation is David referring to here? It's of great comfort for us to know that there are certain foundations or pillars that the gates of hell can't prevail against. Praise the Lord that the foundations of the Christian faith, the foundations of Christ and his kingdom can never be destroyed. We stand on the promise of our Savior in Matthew 16, verse 18. And his words to Peter, where he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And further, Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, talking about the work and the outcome of Hymenaeus and Philetus. And notice he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. And what was the big problem with this, along with them believing false doctrine and proclaiming false doctrine, it was the outcome of that. And they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, notice, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so though the foundations of the Christian faith can never truly be destroyed, we see here in 2 Timothy 2 that they can be partially destroyed in some through the desires and the work of wicked men, as we see in how Hymenaeus and Philetus overthrew the faith of some. Wicked men work as hard as they can to overthrow the truth of God in the hearts and minds of his people, to scatter the sheep, turning them into the hopeless instead of the hopeful in Christ. And it's true that there have been times, and there will be times, and persecutions and trials where it looks like the foundations of the church are being destroyed. It may seem to God's people that the foundations have been destroyed, and yet 
the spiritual foundations of the true church can never be removed by the grace and work of God. Praise the Lord for that. However, temporal foundations can be destroyed. The foundations of nations and kingdoms, of civil governments, commerce and business, military, etc., can, can and have crumbled or have been dismantled through wicked actions and divine judgment many times in history. We see this clearly in many aspects today as well. Christ sovereignly rules over the nations by his providence, and we need to remember that even as we consider such temporal crumbling. And so when the foundations have been torn down, what is the righteous man to do? What can he do? David gives a call to action. Beloved, Christians aren't to cower in confusion. We, we don't bow the knee to Baal. We don't withdraw or act as if Christ's rule has been defeated. But rather, Christians must turn to the Lord in humble repentance and worship and obedience. And as Christ is king over the nations, we get involved, supporting and encouraging restoration of godly rule in the civil realm. Such rule brings about biblical governments over good and evil in our communities according to the word of God. We don't just sit idly by. But such turning to God is exactly what David does, notice in verse 4. As he considers the question, the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Ah, we see this glorious picture of God in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Interesting anthropomorphic language here. But see where God is and what he does here. David says to the skeptic, look at who's in charge. Despite all that is around him and was around him and all that was swirling within him, same is true for us, Despite all that is around us and all of the perceived uncertainty and misery, all is well because we have certainty knowing the Lord reigns. Beloved, despite the denial of the skeptics, there is a God in heaven, and he is the true and living God. He is the transcendent one who is in his holy temple notice, where he is worshipped. And this God governs the world. He is on his heavenly throne. And what is true of his throne? What does scripture teach us is true of his throne? Beautiful pictures. It is a throne of glory as it transcends over all earthly rulers and authorities. It's a throne of government as God gives his law and governs all of his creation. It's his throne of judgment as he renders to all according to their works. And it is God's throne of grace, where his people find abundant mercy and help in our times of need. Sometimes we may understand, and we fully grasp, and we've recognized for many a time and many years that God is seated on his throne, 
and his throne is in heaven. He rules and reigns over all. But remember and be blessed by this multifaceted aspect of the throne of God and what God does as he is seated on his throne. David declares in Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And further, looking back at this anthropomorphic language that David uses regarding his eyes and his eyelids, notice that his eyes do what? They see, and interestingly, his eyelids test. His eyes see, his eyelids test the sons of men. He not only sees all men, he not only knows all. He is omniscient. But he also sees through all men. He tests and tries men, knowing what they think and say and do. And this is a terror for the wicked, but it should be of great comfort for us who are the redeemed in Christ. We know what others seem like to us, but God knows what they really are. The wicked may try to deceive us, but they can't deceive God, who sees all men according to truth. In verse 5, David says, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. And so there is a great contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And know that God's testing of the righteous is for our good. We see this in many places in the scriptures. Peter speaks to this, for example, in 1 Peter. But it is good for us to go through the divine refiner's fire. That is good. Sometimes it's not always comfortable as the Lord is burning off the dross, that the, genuine, that the genuineness of our faith may be shown to be more precious than gold or silver. But it is good for us to go through the refiner's fire so that such sin and dross will be burned off in our sanctification and that we would become more pure before the Lord. Remember Moses' words to the people regarding the Lord their God in Deuteronomy 8.16. He said, God fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Sometimes it is easy, it's too easy to be tempted to say that the times and manners in which God refines us and is doing that purifying sanctification and sanctifying work in us by his Spirit, that it isn't good, that it isn't for our good, that there is a different end. But here we see that the Lord, in his word, declares the opposite. He tells us the purpose of it. It is for our good. And again, in our broader understanding of Scripture and understanding the whole counsel of God, we, we know and trust God in his promises and work. We desire this work, for we know what he is doing in it. Peter describes the good work of testing 
and the testing of our faith in 1 Peter 1.7. He says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, beloved, there is this wonderful testing that the Lord does for the righteous and to us. But also notice, there is righteous divine hatred, David says, of the wicked and those who love violence. And this hatred is manifested through acts of punishment. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 11. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Beloved, this picture is that God would rain down judgment like hot coals, like hail coming down everywhere upon their heads. They would not be able to escape. And this cup language is also something that we need to understand in the whole counsel of God. Who else do we know drank the cup of God's wrath? That is our Lord Jesus Christ. The cup of his wrath is what is drank as he unfurls and uh, carries out his righteous judgment against sin. And in fact, what is true of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the cross, he drank that cup to the dregs. There was not a drop left. He drank it in full. And so we praise him for such things so that we would not be those who would endure or face the righteous judgment and wrath of God upon ourselves, that we would not have to drink that cup, for Christ drank it for us. And so the wicked will not be able to escape. They will not be able to escape the the hot coals and the fire and the brimstone. David uses the fire and brimstone intentionally to allude to the terrible destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember in the scriptures, that's how Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Matthew Henry says this, What a terrible tempest! The wicked are hurried away in at death. What a lake of fire and brimstone they must make their bed in forever, in the congregation of the dead and the damned. It's a terrible picture. It is a terrible portion of the cup that they must drink. Those who choose the Lord for the portion of their cup, though, shall have what they choose and be forever happy in their choice. But those who reject his grace can be, excuse me, shall be made to drink the cup of his fury. But look at verse 7. As David ends this psalm with, a picture of the Lord. Considering all of this, considering the judgment, considering the testing, considering the trust, considering this whole package picture, David says, for the Lord is righteous. 
He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. If anybody, scoffers or otherwise, would say of God, ah, but you see, God is unfair. He is unjust to rain down such coals and fire and brimstone against the wicked. He is unjust to give them such a cup. No, the Lord is righteous. If anyone were to say he is unjust in forgiving sinners, those he declares righteous in Christ, no, he is perfectly just and righteous. And he loves righteousness. And so, contrary to those who seek to devour and to destroy the righteous, God being the source and definition of righteousness, notice that he loves those who he has granted grace to in Christ, to those that he has justified, declaring them righteous in his sight. He loves and he smiles upon the righteous. He looks at us with grace and tenderness and puts gladness in our hearts in the midst of darkness. It's really the beautiful picture that we need to see in this language of his countenance beholding the upright. His light, his smiling face in the midst of dark places. He looks at us with grace and tenderness. He puts gladness in our heart and we love him in return, praising Jesus and giving him all the glory. And so, beloved, what can the righteous do? We need to have a committed position of love and humility. Have a committed position of love and humility with your God, turning to Him and trusting Him as you regularly place your cares and your concerns regarding your protection and provision in Christ's hands instead of taking matters into your own. We need to have a regular seeking of the Lord, dependence upon the Lord, a true trusting Him when things aren't going well. That needs to be present in our lives and not have knee-jerk reactions to veer course under our own compass. But having done that, what can the righteous do? Stand in confidence in Christ, not in fear or confusion. Press forward for his crown and covenant, not bowing the knee to the wicked who are attacking and tearing apart foundations. And praise Jesus for his testing of you, even in such times as that. Even as such, in such times as we are in today. The Lord has placed you in this time and then in this place in history for a wonderful purpose, his purposes. And as you are here, he is growing you, he is working in you, and he is testing you. He is sanctifying you. And the growth that he is bringing about as a result of it, we need to praise him for. Praise Jesus knowing who he loves and who he hates. Knowing who he tests 
and knowing and having even comfort in, the, in knowing who he will rain coals and brimstone down upon in his righteous judgment. And finally, praise the righteous Lord Jesus and enjoy his smiling face that is towards you even here today as you walk with him and before him and even and especially as you go through the valley of the shadow and you are encouraged and uplifted by his light-filled face and his presence with you. Enjoy and thank him for his grace and his tenderness to you, as well as the gladness that he has put in your heart. Those who know Christ have alien joy, alien gladness. It isn't from us. It's a gift from him because we know him and we love him. And we know all that he is doing. What he has done and what he promises to do. And we take great joy in him. And all that he has accomplished. And we have great peace in him because of his protection. Even if it is true that the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. That is true if we are martyrs for the faith. And if they take our life. It is not outside of his sovereign will and for his glory. He has placed gladness in your heart. To be in covenant relationship with him, to be his child, to be the recipient of the riches of his grace. Don't lose sight of that. And don't stop praising him for it and enjoying it. Enjoying him. Praise God for his word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, it is wonderful the ways that you reveal yourself, your work, as you reveal us and our condition and our relationship to you, as you give us windows and insight into your righteousness and your justice and your loving care and your sanctifying work. Oh God, you are to be praised for all of these things. But oh Lord, we do pray that you would encourage us by your word, that you would keep us focused and diligent in our obedience, that, that, that we would keep our eyes upon you, that our trust would be in you, and that we would walk faithfully with you, putting aside the temptations and fleeing from them. Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to see you as the joy of our salvation. Help us to see and to grow in our relationship with you and to see your marvelous gifts of grace. Oh, we praise you, O oh God. that it is your will and purpose, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that this would be true for all eternity because of Christ. We praise you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.